And as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold until or unto the next day, for it was now eventide. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about five thousand. And it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter filled with the Holy Ghost said unto them, ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation. In any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all men glorified God for that which was done. For the man was above 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was showed. Now that's our reading and we trust the Lord will bless the reading and our thoughts on what we have read together. Uh, the subject this evening from Acts chapter 4, the heading is this, boldness in the face of persecution. It's a bit of a turning point in the witness of the early church from chapter 1 through to this point. Up until this time certainly you see it in chapter 3 that The disciples of Jesus, the followers of the Lord, were obviously quite welcome in the temple. There was no prohibition for them entering the temple, nor persecution when they did so. And in fact, we saw in chapter 3 that it seemed to be the habit of the disciples, Peter and John, at least that we know of, to go up to the temple to pray. And that would have been a regular occurrence. Now things change. And as a consequence of the events of chapter 4, boldness now is required by the disciples. 
So up until this point, there hasn't been the necessity per se for boldness because persecution has been limited, if there at all. You think about the events of chapter 2 and the preaching and the many thousands of people who were converted. You think of chapter 3 and the miracle that was done in chapter 3 and the blessing of it. And now you come to chapter 4 and there are consequences for that that take the shape of persecution. And boldness is required. In fact, there are a few themes that run through this chapter, one of which is boldness. It appears again and again. The idea of boldness. For example, in chapter 4 and verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and in fact, after the trouble, the bit that we haven't read of the chapter, when you get further down to verse number 29, you discover the boldness is actually the purpose of the prayer that the Christians make as a result of the persecution they've received. So they're not praying for the persecution to cease. They're actually praying for boldness, for it says in verse 29, And now, Lord, behold their threatenings. It doesn't say stop them. It says, Grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. So their prayer is for boldness in the midst of persecution. So the boldness was there at the beginning. In fact, it was observed. And the opposition, the Jewish leaders noticed it and were were paying attention to the fact that there was boldness in Peter and John. And then the Christians, in verse number 29, they're praying that this boldness would continue in the face of persecution. And actually, when you come down to verse 31, you discover that their prayer was answered. For it says... When they had prayed, the place was shaken where they assembled together. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spake the word of God, here it is, with boldness. And so their prayer was answered and they were bold. Now chapter 4 is more than a historical narrative. It is that. It is actually, I think, a template. It is an example to follow for all disciples, all Christians in our day when persecution comes. So it is an encouragement to be bold with the gospel, with the proclamation of the resurrected Christ in the face of persecution, whatever persecution that may uh, be. So let's look at this chapter and see what lessons we can learn. The first section, there is conflict, verse 1 to 4. And it's interesting, isn't it, that there has a miracle, there has been a miracle take place in chapter 3 which has caused this conflict. But when the conflict comes in the first four verses, as we're introduced to it, they speak unto the people. And so this is the aftermath of the miracle. There is the preaching taking place. The priest, the captain of the temple, the Sadducees came upon them. So you have the spiritual, the Jewish authorities, particularly around about the temple, and they come into the scene now. So you've had this miracle take place, you remember the beautiful game, you've got the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ being made, and it's all connected to this miracle, and now you've got the arrival on the scene of Jewish authorities, the spiritual authorities, and they're not in the slightest bit interested about this man. They couldn't care less about him, about his predicament about his life prior to meeting 
Peter and John, about his needs, about his welfare, or about the transformation that's so evident in front of them. They're not the slightest bit interested in this individual, as an individual. They're not rejoicing that this life, this life has been transformed. This man has been miraculously healed. It was so obvious he's standing there. He's over 40 years old. This man had had a long period of time round about that temple. He'd have been known to the authorities. And yet there was not a shred of compassion for him. All they were interested in was their authority and their perceived breach or undermining of their authority. It's quite a lesson, isn't it? When religion overtakes compassion. And that's what you have here. Uh, Barnes, in his notes in the New Testament, says this, No inquiry was made whether the miracle had been really wrought, but the only inquiry was whether they had conformed to their views of doctrine and order. And they had two issues. You see this in, in the verses as we've read it. And verse number two, it says in my authorised text, being grieved. They were upset, they were annoyed, they were grieved. And they were grieved for two reasons. It says it in the sentence. Number one, that they taught the people. And number two, they preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So there's two issues here. They were teaching the people and they weren't authorised to do by these Jewish authorities. So they were adopting a role that these authorities did not think was theirs to do. And they were teaching. I have no doubt that Peter and John, certainly when you see the sermon that you've already read in chapter 2, and what you've read, in fact, what was happening in chapter 3, I have no doubt that there would have been an explanation from the Old Testament scriptures, a teaching from the Old Testament scriptures of what this signified, of the spiritual significance of what had been demonstrated, of the truth that this was consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ as we know it. And it would have been an unpacking, a teaching, an instruction ministry, taking Old Testament scriptures, as they so often did in these early chapters of the Acts, and unpacking the truth that this message was firmly uh, based upon and came from the Old Testament scriptures. So there was teaching involved. But there was more than that. They were preaching resurrection and preaching it through the Lord Jesus Christ. So they were preaching Jesus as being raised from the dead and therefore they were preaching resurrection. The proclamation of the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and therefore the truth of resurrection. Now the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. Acts 23 verse 8 explicitly tells us that. They did not believe in resurrection. But they were in political power at this point in Jewish history, which means that the Romans were quite happy for them to control the temple precincts because they were very much into um, Greek culture and thereby almost Roman culture. So they were closer to, politically closer to the Romans than the Pharisees would have been. But the Sadducees did not like resurrection. <coughs> 
uh, in the Expositor's Greek Testament, it says this, it was not merely a dogmatic question of the denial of resurrection which concerned the Sadducees, but the danger to their power and to their wealth from temple sacrifices and Jews, if the resurrection of Jesus was proclaimed and accepted, it was going to cost them politically and financially. So they were opposed to it no matter what. Now, look what happens. They're thrown in prison. So they get a night in the jail, and it says that in verse number three, they laid hands on them and put them in, hold unto the next day, it was eventide. And so the, uh, the preachers of the gospel are bound. Their voices are silent, their mouths are closed. But the good seed of the word of God has been scattered. And it doesn't require the presence or activity of the preachers once the preaching has been done for the blessing to come. God works. In fact, he worked overnight. For in the next verse, it says, How be it many of them which heard the word believed. And the number of the men was about 5,000. Someone said this, The gospel cannot be bound. The good seed sown sprouted overnight, and so it did. And there was this huge harvest of souls, thousands of people saved, believing what they'd heard, believing the gospel. And whether you think this was 5,000 that were saved on that occasion, or whether you think it's a running total uh, for the first few chapters of the book of Acts, it could be both ways. Uh, 3,000 saved in the day of Pentecost, those who saved in Acts 2.47, day by day, those who were saved here. It matters not, you've got a group of 5,000 men who are believers, stated at this point in time. Plus women, plus children. It's not a generic name for mankind, it's actually 5,000 men. So you have a body of thousands and thousands and thousands. Can you imagine 5,000 men? Just think about, I don't know, and you see the crowd, probably St. Mun can't get 5,000 people to go, I don't know. But you think about a crowd, and you think about all that that would entail, and all that that would bring, uh, and the excitement of it, the challenge of it, the, the blessing of it. 5,000 men saved. And opposition comes. And the opposition is from verse 5 down to verse 12. So it came to pass on the morrow. So what you have now, uh, the day after, is this. You have a gathering takes place and it has an echo of a previous gathering. Just a few months before, this same scene took place in basically the same location. Except it was the Lord Jesus who was brought into a courtroom to face a mock trial. But it was before the same people and probably in the same place or thereabouts, Annas and Caiaphas, in both that we know of, and, and these other people as well. And here is, here is the charge in the form of a question that they put against Peter and John. Look at verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked. Now, take careful note of the language that's used here in these verses because 
there are interesting shifts between Peter and John and the authorities. And there is an imperceptible shift of momentum from one to the other. It starts off with an accusation which takes the form of a question. It's a question. And the question is this, twofold. By what power, number one, or by what name have you done this? Now, the rest of the chapter is all about the name. It's all about authority. It comes and goes right through the chapter. We'll see that. But here's the question starting it off. It's an accusation, but it takes the form of a question. It's twofold. It's an inquiry as to the power or the name that did this. Did what? They can't even say it. That brought life-changing blessing to a poor beggar and made him whole and transformed his life. They just says this, this. It's the issue of authority. And these Jewish authorities are concerned about their power, their authority. They're threatened by a power and a name that competes with theirs. There's self-preservation at work here. There's echoes of Herod's response, for example, to the wise men when news of a king came to them. You remember... (laughs) Christmas isn't that long ago. You remember uh, Herod's response. He felt threatened and his his perceived threat to his position and power resulted in aggression and violence. And that's what you have here. So there's the question. Now notice over to Peter, verse 8. Now Peter, it says, filled with the Holy Spirit. So God is in control of him by the Spirit of God who is controlling Peter now. Now, a one man in the face of, in the face of a multitude, one man controlled by the Spirit of God controls the whole thing. Because God the Spirit controlling a man, the possibilities are, well, we don't know. They're unknown. Anything can happen when God's in control. So what happens is this. Notice the wisdom, and notice the precision. He says, ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, it's given them their place. Note this. If we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, not this. So he shifts the focus onto the individual, giving him respect, giving him place, and identifying that this is actually what this is all about. So he says, and he uses language to demonstrate the injustice and their attitude of hostility and their callousness. And he says, look, is this what it's all about? But he doesn't use the expression this. He says, the good deed done to this impotent man. And he goes on, by what means he is made whole. He describes the whole thing. There's an individual who was lame and now he's been made whole and it's a blessing in his life. It's a good thing that's been done. One writer said this, he is painting himself and John as benefactors, not malefactors. Through them, a good thing has happened here. Acknowledge it, is what he's saying. You can't deny it. He sets the narrative for the accusation. He's taking control. 
He's explaining this is a kindness, this is a good thing, and the tense is a perfect tense, which means this, it's not just happen and going to undo, this is continuing to be a blessing in the man's life. And look what Peter does. He links their use of the name to the means by which the miracle has been done. So he says, you want to know about power and you want to know about a name, it's the name by which this great thing has been done that I'm going to tell you. And he says in verse 10, Be it known unto you all and to the people of Israel, here it is, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. You want to talk about a name? Here's the name. It's Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The question has been answered. Here in Jesus Christ of Nazareth is both the power and the authority, and that's all tied up in the name, that's responsible for this miracle of healing. This title bringing together the man that they knew, Jesus of Nazareth, the man that they'd crucified with the Messiahship of Christ. And you see how it's building, how the accusation is turned now, how Peter has been used of the Spirit of God to take a question that was an accusation to provide explanation, and now he's going to bring a charge against them. All in a few sentences. It's masterful. And so let the true trial begin. The Spirit of God's turned the tables. It's no longer Peter and John in trial. They're in trial. And what the Spirit of God has done as he controls Peter is to expose their callousness and lack of compassion, is to draw attention to the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, and here is the accusation now. Here's the charge. Let the true trial begin. Whom ye crucified. There it is. They crucified Jesus. Now this is not a, this is not a generational statement here. This is aimed at the people in the room. Because Caiaphas and Annas are standing there. And they were directly responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. He says, you crucified him. You stand and accuse us of a good thing. I'm going to stand and accuse you of an evil thing. You crucified him. That's what they did. This is not corporate guilt. This is the fact that they literally killed him. Yet if that's what they did, notice he moves it past what they did. Whom God raised from the dead. That's what they did. This is what God did. Oh, this is absolute masterful. You see what he's done? He's taken it, as we've said, from a question which was an accusation. A, a desire for information that would be self-condemnatory. Uh, and all of a sudden, this great good thing has been attributed to a man that they crucified. And they crucified him in absolute opposition to God. For what did God do with the crucified Jesus of Nazareth? God raised them from the dead. And the first point of evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the healed man standing in front of them. Because it's through the name of Jesus that this man was healed. And there is no power in a dead man. A dead man has no authority. And so the first point of evidence is the changed life, the miracle of healing. 
The second point of evidence is the Old Testament scriptures, which he now quotes. Psalm 118, verse 22, is quoted by Peter, and Peter loves to quote this. He'll quote it in his epistle in 1 Peter. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. So he's taking them back into the Old Testament scriptures, back into the Psalms. And he's saying, there's evidence in front of you, and there's evidence in the scriptures of what I'm saying to you. That through the name of a living saviour, this man has been healed. And it's the living saviour that God vindicated that you rejected. Where does that take them back to? To the picture in Psalm 118 of a construction by God. And in the construction by God, he says this, this is the stone which was set at naught of you builders. Now the builders are the religious authorities. You remember God blessed the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. He gave them responsibility and he gave them privilege. And the responsibility was to bear the name of God to the whole world. To be the conduit through which God's law and the blessing of God would be known by the nations. And so Israel was given covenant blessings. Israel was given a special place in God's dealings. And they were part and at the hub of God's work amongst mankind, or were meant to be. But they failed miserably. And their greatest failure is here. Because the stone that God gave them that was going to be crucial to his whole building, his whole construction work, his whole work of redemption with mankind, they set that stone aside. They rejected the crucial part of God's plan, which was his son, who was to be key to the whole thing. And they examined that stone called Jesus of Nazareth to see if he could be a brick in God's construction work amongst men. And they said, no, he can't be. And they rejected him and they crucified him. Say, he's no use. He's no use to the plan of God upon earth. He's no use to the construction that God is doing. And of course... What they rejected, God not only made him a brick in the building, but actually put him as the key cornerstone to the whole thing. And demonstrates that by raising him from the dead. He's not useless to God, he's vital to God. And the man that men rejected, God restores and he's crucial to the redemptive purposes of God upon earth. Now, that shouldn't have been a surprise to them. Because the Lord Jesus had preached that to them before he died, using the exact same scripture. Matthew 21, verse 23. When he was coming to the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching and said, By what authority? Same question. Doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority? Same issue. The Lord Jesus, by the same people, had his authority directly questioned. And how did he respond to that? Well, he responded at length, and at the end of what he was saying to them, he said this, right down to verse 42 to verse 45 of Matthew 21. Jesus said unto them, Did ye never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same as become the head of the corner? This is Matthew 21. The Lord Jesus is preaching this very Scripture to them. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvellous in our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. Whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind them to powder. 
But listen to this. And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard these parables, they perceived that he spake of them. They had some understanding of what he was saying, if not a full understanding. And Peter now charges them here in chapter 4 with the fulfillment of direct prophecy from Christ as a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And, by the way, Peter will again quote this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through to verse 8. He expounds the truth of this in his epistle. When he says, Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, he that believeth him shall not be confounded, and so on. And to you which believe is precious, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offence, and so on. You can read that at your leisure. What is the outcome then that Peter brings of what he has preached. What's the point? What's the, what's the, the real um, grip point of his little sermon? It's been masterful. It's been an exposition in such concise form. So few words to convey such huge meaning. But if God raised his son from the dead and he's absolutely vital to God's purposes for mankind, rejected by men, in fact, crucified by them. And this evidence that stands before them can't be gainsaid. Power has come into this man's life. The power of a resurrected saviour. And the outcome of God's evaluation of Jesus of Nazareth, as in contrast to theirs, is that very well used and appropriately used gospel text. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. You see what he does? He takes it from healing to salvation. One is an illustration of the other. Which, by the way, gives us a pattern when we're preaching the gospel that the miracle works of Christ in our gospels are examples of salvation work in the life of an individual. That's exactly what Peter does here. So he takes what they've seen and he takes the power that's been applied to that and he moves it across to this issue of salvation and he says the same thing applies. Just as there's only one name, just as there's only one power that can do that, so there is only one name and one power that can do more than that. The salvation of the soul. There's no other name, no other person other than Jesus Christ. It's compelling preaching. And he says, whereby we must be saved. Lenski in his commentary says this, an absolute fact of necessity on which hangs eternal salvation or eternal destruction. Since salvation is possible only in connection with Jesus, all who desire to be saved must embrace his name. It's his name. There's no other name. It's all about the name in the chapter. Well, in verses 13 down to verse number 18, we have the sad section of those who saw 
and yet we're blind. Because it's interesting that it says in verse 13, they uses the word, now when they saw, the things that they saw and understood are interesting here. First of all, they saw the boldness of Peter and John. First thing, saw their boldness. Ordinary people. And they understood that they were unlearned and ignorant men. These were men that had gone through the equivalent of seminary, they'd gone through the equivalent of the Jewish uh, rabbinical training that would give people skill in Old Testament scriptures and the arguments of them and the teaching of them. They didn't have any of that. They were fishermen. I don't know the extent of their formal education, but they're taken up by the Spirit of God And these men are bold. And it wasn't the fact that they were unlearned and ignorant that was so important. It was this. They took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. This makes all the difference. These were men who had travelled with Jesus. They were disciples of Jesus Christ. They were identifiable as such. These men were now taking their place as witnesses to what they had seen and heard. And this was the thing, and you can apply that. And it caused a huge problem. Because in verse number 14, it's not only that they saw Peter and John, but notice verse 14, they saw something else, and beholding the man which was healed. So they see the man. So they say the preachers, something strange with these preachers, I mean, they're they're preaching powerfully, they're preaching expositionally, they're preaching with a wisdom and in a style even that surely fishermen could not just have come come upon or just learned. And they're associated with Jesus. They've spent time with him. They're actually behaving like him and they're showing his character of compassion and so on. It's very uh, Christ-like, their behaviour here. It's as if the character of Christ has rubbed off on them, so to speak. And they're indwelt with the Spirit of God and they're preaching and they see them and then they see the man. There's absolutely nothing they can say. Can't argue against it. And they don't even try to argue against it. So what they try to do is suppress the truth. For what you cannot argue against and what you cannot disprove, you will suppress. That's what happens to the gospel so often. It's hard to argue against the effects of the gospel in the lives of individuals. The transformative power of Christ is such an identifiable Evidence of the reality of the gospel. Life's changed. It's hard to argue against that. It's hard also to argue against the truth of the Bible. From the Bible. And so suppression comes in. That's what happens here. And so they say in verse number 16, there's no doubt about it. What are we going to say? Because you can't argue against, you can hear this debate on this kind of perplexity you can't argue against in fact everybody knows about it we can't deny it but look what we need to do is not accept it (laughs) that's the last thing we're going to do accept it no way um believe it absolutely no way what we're going to have to do is stop it suppress it and so they decide to do that very thing 
and they bring them in, they called them in verse 18, and they commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach. Here it is. In the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus. Well, what is the response to that verse 19 down to verse number 22? It's all about the name. Acts 3, verse 6. And the lame man was healed, Peter said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And here it is again. Don't speak or don't teach in the name of Jesus. So authority is at stake here. So verse 19, Peter and John take them up on that point and they say, look, here's the issue. Whose authority are we going to actually obey here? He says, when they, verse 19, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. What do you think? First time they've asked a question. See how it's come full circle? Now we're going to ask you a question. You've asked us a question, we've answered it, now we ask you a question. What should we do? Whose authority is supreme? Yours or God's? And they answer it for them in verse 20. He says, we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And so what they say is just this. We've all seen and heard the same things. You've seen them, we've seen them. You've heard them, we've heard them. The difference is this. You want to suppress it, we want to proclaim it. That's the only difference. And we will not have our voices silenced. They will acknowledge the true authority of God and simply say this, we cannot stop preaching. We will not stop preaching. One writer said this, to conclude, as Christians, the temptation is often to hide away our Christianity under other outward things so that we don't have to cope with the inevitable hassles that ensue if people find out we actually are followers of Jesus Christ. Yet the clear message of the New Testament is this, that God's people are here to stand out and to speak out. To stand out and to speak out. And remember this, they were standing out for their Christ-likeness. And they were declaring truth, the gospel, witnesses to the resurrection, and they would not be silenced. Well, it finishes with this in verse 21. The authorities that began by bringing these men in front of them and by an accusation in the form of a question. And the question was about power. The question was about a name. At the end of the scene, they are seen to be impotent and powerless in themselves. When they had further threatened them, they let them go. Finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all men glorify God. 
for that which was done. I love the verse 22. For the man was above 40 years old. It's if he's ancient. The man, the man was above 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was showed. And what we have in this section is a wonderful template for boldness in the face of persecution. Christ-likeness in character, in conduct, and their voices were not silenced. That's a challenge, I think, to us, and I think increasingly may become uh, a challenge more and more as we think about the cost of standing out and speaking out. Trust that God will bless his work.